So, guess what? You have an older brother and sister that made some pretty bad mistakes, and you get to learn from them. Did you know that? Guess who it is? It's the nation Israel. It's the nation Israel. Now, we've got the Old Testament, and it's pretty much focused on the world of Israel and its history and development as God's people. Then we have the New Testament where, we, where the church is God's people. And we say to ourselves, well, what do they have to do with us? You know. Well, actually, uh, we have a statement from the Apostle Paul that we are supposed to learn from them. The history that you see of the ancient Israelites is not whitewashed in the Bible. They didn't pretty it up for you. They didn't take out all the ugly parts so that they would look good. In fact, every blunder, every mistake, every rebelliousness, every ugly behavior towards God, none of it is covered up. It's all there just like they took all their dirty laundry and just put it out there on the line for the whole world to see. It's like when you go in the supermarket and you see the tabloid headlines. Well, the Bible, the Old Testament, is kind of like 3,000 years of supermarket tabloid headlines for you to read as you're going on, right? The interesting thing about it is that it's not randomly there. It is there for us to learn from. So these are our older siblings, and we're supposed to learn from their mistakes. When we bring up 1 Corinthians 10, verses 6 through 12, we see something interesting. We see a little passage in which Paul is speaking to the church at Corinth, and he begins his little teaching by saying, Now these things happened as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. And then he goes through a four-point teaching, and then at the end he says it again. He says, Now these things happened to them as an example And they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So the question today, is there anyone in the house who's willing to learn from the mistakes of others? Anybody in the house who wants to learn from their mistakes? (laughs) Very good. Very good. Well, we're going to take it point by point because Paul pretty much laid this out very, very easily and clearly. You may ask yourself, what in the world could I possibly learn from people who were living in a desert, wandering around. They're from a culture that I have nothing to do with. They spoke a language that I know nothing about. There were no iPhones. There were not even flush toilets. They dressed funny. What in the world could I possibly have in common with these people that I would be able to learn from them? Well, what you're going to discover, I hope today, is that even though the circumstances around their blunders was this and such, and your circumstances are this and such over here, there's something that can be applied across the millennia that's in common between them and you, them and us. In fact, are we any better than them? Has human nature changed? Have we evolved to a higher state we don't sin anymore now. We don't do like they do. Is that the, tr- the case? No, it is not. No, it is not. 
we're going to see how we can apply this ancient civilization to our modern issues. So we started with, now these things have happened as examples. Now with verse 7, we come to point 1. And remember, there's four of them. So if you need to keep track of how we're going, you can just count 1, 2, 3, 4. It's going to go pretty quickly, I think. The first point that Paul makes is this. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. So you may be saying, well, what, am I not supposed to eat and drink and play? Well, no, that's not what's meant here. Because Paul is referring to a very specific incident. And it takes place as related in Exodus 32. And you will know it as the story of the golden calf. Y'all heard of the golden calf? So I'm just going to read you Exodus 32.1. Now when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron and said to him, Come, make us a god who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. This is just a few short weeks after God stepped in miraculously and did something so extraordinary that the sea parted and they were liberated from 400 years of slavery and watched their enemies be drowned in the sea after them and not one of them was harmed. Just a few short weeks later. And here they are, first of all, saying that Moses is the one that did it. Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt. Did Moses bring them out of the land of Egypt? Who brought them out of the land of Egypt? God did. So they're so confused. And he's not coming back, and we don't know where he is, and he's taking too long in the mountains. So Aaron, make a God for us so that we can follow it. They just kind of forgot pretty quickly, didn't they? Uh, And Aaron amazingly, is easily persuaded by the rabble, and he takes up a collection, give me your earrings, give me your necklaces, and he makes a golden calf. And here's what it says in Exodus 32.6. It says, so the next day they rose early and offered burnt offerings to this calf and brought peace offerings to this so-called God, and the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. So that's what Paul was talking about. They were having a golden calf party. It wasn't just any old eating and drinking and playing. They were, let's let's have a party. We got a calf. We got a new God. And that's what he's saying. Let's go back to what he said. He said, do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. They were having a a little God party with a lowercase g, not the God, but the golden calf God. So what can we learn from this? I imagine there's not a single one of you in this room has ever taken your earrings and jewelry and melted it down to make an idol, right? You you never went and begged Pastor Marcus to please make you a, a little God that you could worship and then go have a party. So... It's not going to be that literal a translation, but let's look at it a little more deeply. Israel was used to 
the pagan worship under which they lived in Egypt. They were used to that after 400 years. They didn't have a strong relationship with the God of Israel at that time. They were living under slavery. So I ask you, what old habits from your life before you came to Christ are you smuggling into your Christian life? What part of that old life is luring you back, saying, you know, God is taking too long, so why don't I just come up with my own way of worshiping, my own way of doing things? Okay? Here's the thing. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. He is a new creature. He doesn't go back and turn back to those old habits anymore. He's a new creature. The old things, it says, have passed away. Behold, new things have come. All things have become new. So if it is the case that old habits are pulling you back to your old life, your pre-Christian life, and you have a reluctance to give them up, I would say you have something to learn from ancient Israel on this point. We're already ready for point two. See how swiftly we're going to go through this? This is verse 8, the very next verse. He says, nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Well, as you can imagine from the first example, Paul has something very specific in mind. Another example of the behavior of the Israelites that he's referring to here. And what he's referring to is Numbers 25, in which Israel got involved with worshiping the Baal, that's the Lord, or the, another lowercase g, God, of Peor. And why did, why did they get lured into this idolatry? Well, because the men and the women got intimate. The Israelite men were seduced by the pagan women, and they got involved with them. And then the pagan women who then had uh, some lure and seduction and power over them influenced them to worship their gods instead of the God of Israel. God had warned them. I'll read you what he warned them. He said, watch yourself that you make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land into which you are going, or it will become a snare in your midst. But rather, you are to tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and cut down their asherim, for you shall not worship any other god. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, that's Elkanah, is a jealous god. Otherwise, you might make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and you might take some of his daughters for your sons, and his daughters might play the harlot with their gods and cause your sons also to play the harlot with their gods. You shall make for yourself no molten gods. Could it have been any more clear? So, we read in Numbers 25:3, Israel joined themselves to Baal of Peor. You know, when men and women come together, they become one flesh. So they joined themselves and became one flesh with the pagan women and thus their gods as well. And God judged them, we read in Paul's uh, he says, remember, he says, nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. That's the judgment of God falling very swiftly and very catastrophically on, on the nation Israel for that. So again, you may say to yourself, well, I never did any of that stuff. What does that have to do with me? 
I never got lured into a relationship with someone that pulled me into uh, worshiping pagan gods. Well, again, we're not going to see it so literally. We're going to see some concepts that lie behind this warning. And my question to you for this point is this. Does the culture of the world have more influence in your life than the Christian culture? Do you spend more time receiving TV, Facebook, all kinds of secular and godless but even anti-God messaging coming at you from the world than you do getting messaging that comes from Christian friends, godly Christian counsel, Christian fellowship, and of course, most importantly, the word of God itself. Which one has a greater influence in your life? You know, judging from the value system that I see displayed in the world around me, I would say that we are in as much danger as ancient Israel was with the, with the pagan, pagan idolatry that surrounded them. We, we have got all kinds of, and it's one thing to say godless culture, but I'm seeing a surge of a hateful culture that hates God. It hates God. It's anti-God. It wants to shut God down completely. used to be kind of undercover, but now they don't hide it at all. It's just right out there in the open. So that's the question for you and the lesson and the way that you can learn from ancient Israel on point two. And I'll support that by reading two scriptures, one from Romans 12, which I know Brother George likes to recite to us when he's collecting his offering. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And more about that renewing is Colossians 3, 9, and 10. You laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed. He's being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. So that's point two. We're on to point three. Point three comes from verse nine, which says, Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. Again, Paul is referring to a very specific event. And you have to understand that people who were alive during Paul's day, who had a familiarity with the Old Testament, didn't have to have this explained to them as we do, because they knew the history. So when he says, you know, destroyed by the serpents, they're like, oh yeah, those guys, I know what that's about. But we're going to elucidate it in case it doesn't immediately spring to your mind. Unpack it. It refers to Numbers 21.5, which says the people spoke against God and Moses. And what did they say? Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food. Okay, already I'm seeing a little contradiction here. No food, but we loathe the food. I thought you said there was no food. Well, well, there's food, but I loathe it. Uh, okay, well, that's the first problem. Israel, if you notice, and I'll read it to you again so you don't miss it, is actually accusing God of wanting to kill them. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? In other words, 
God brought them out of Egypt just so he could kill them in the wilderness. Now, would you say that that's a true statement and a true understanding of what God was doing when he freed them from bondage in Egypt? My goodness, he had a plan and a purpose for them to enter into a promised land that was abundant and fruitful and in every way a blessing to them. He wanted them to be his priesthood, his royal nation, to be a light unto the nations. He had big plans for the nation Israel, and here they are saying, you just wanted to kill us. That's why you, why, that's why you did all that. You wanted to just watch us die here in the wilderness. And so what God intended as a blessing, they're seeing it as some sort of crazy death wish. And what a twisting of the truth. And I, I couldn't help but be reminded of the parable of the talents where another little blame shifting goes on. When we have um, Jesus teaching about uh, the master who came and gave different talents to the different people. And the one who received one talent, he just dug a hole and stuck his talent in the ground. And, and that, you know, that's bad enough. But when the master returns and says, okay, where's my talent? The guy says, oh, uh, master, I, I knew you to be a hard man. Reaping where you do not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid. And I went away and hid your talent in the ground. What? A hard man? Was that a truth? Is that true? What he, he just shifted blame off of himself. Instead of taking responsibility, well, I didn't do anything with what was given to me. He just shifted the blame onto the master. You were the one. Oh, I knew you were a hard Man, and this is what Israel is doing. I'm miserable, and you're trying to kill me. I don't like where you've put me, and it's your fault. So there's this blame shifting, but there's another aspect to this. Because when they say, for there is no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food, do you know what they're talking about? They're talking about a special one time in history, kind of seed that came from heaven, we read in the New Testament. Heaven made specifically for their needs. Versatile. You could fry it. You could boil it. You could bake it. You could do anything with it. It was sweet. It was good. It had the taste of coriander. And it showed up every morning. They didn't even have to work for it except to just gather it in. And it was so magical, I should say supernatural. It was so out of the ordinary, so extraordinary a thing that it even served the needs of the commands of God for them to honor the Sabbath. Because on Fridays, double the amount showed up so that they could gather in double and they wouldn't have to work on the Sabbath. This is Imagine this heavenly food. I wish I could have tasted it. And what do they call that? Miserable food? Miserable food? Has anybody got their Bible open? Just somebody find John 6.31. John 6.31. Anybody who's got it, just read it out quickly, hopefully. John 6.31. from heaven and they didn't want it they didn't want it it was miserable it was miserable 
My goodness, what ingrates. So, again, we come to that point. Regarding point three, I realize that none of you has been in that situation where you've been given manna from heaven and you turned it away or where you um, found yourself in the wilderness and didn't really want to be there. But let's look at how it might look in your life if we apply this teaching to something that you can learn. When the blessing of God doesn't look the way you expected it to, do you throw it back in God's face? Is it possible that there's some part of you, if you're going through hard stuff, that resents God for allowing you to go through it? Do you ever in your private moments actually blame God for the things that happen in your life? And what might be more common, if you've said no to all those things, perhaps you would say yes to this. Do you paste onto God's face an ugly, vindictive human face that's got no love in it and that's angry at you and wants to punish you and God looks at you and it's like this. Do you paint God's face that way? Because that's not how God's face looks. But sometimes we think that he looks that way because we're projecting, we're putting what we think his face is onto his face, but it's not his face. So have you done that? God is a God of grace. He's a God of atonement. He's a God of mercy. He's a God of steadfast love that endureth forever. He's long-suffering. He's patient. He cares. He loves. So to make him out as the villain and the cause of all your problems is a big mistake indeed. Here's what God says. He says, Through the prophet Jeremiah, for I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. So do we take his provision for granted? Are we ingrates like they? God forbid. God forbid. Point four. Making good time. Point four is verse 10, which says, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now again, a reader in those days would say, oh, the grumblers who were destroyed by the destroyer, I know what he's talking about, but maybe we don't. So we're going to elucidate that, that this particular reference is to number 16, which goes like this. Is it not enough for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the rest? Oh, let me start over to just give you the context. Moses is talking to the sons of Korah. And the sons of Korah are one branch of the Levite tribe. And all the Levites were given special responsibilities to care for the tabernacle. They were taken as God's firstborn to do the service of the tabernacle. So the Korah family, they have their little piece of that. Some of the Levite families are responsible for putting up the tent, and some are responsible for cataloging all the poles and bars and clasps, and others for carrying and 
They're all involved in the care of the tabernacle. So the sons of Korah have a problem with that. And this is Moses responding to their complaint. So he says, is it not enough for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the rest of the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself to do the service of the tabernacle of the Lord and to stand before the congregation to minister to them and that he has brought you near, Korah, and all your brothers, sons of Levi, with you? And are you seeking for the priesthood also? Like what he gave you isn't enough somehow, and you also have to have the priesthood? The sons of Korah have been given this special privilege, and yet they protest because they don't have the authority of the priesthood. Instead of seeing their privilege, they're complaining that they, well, about what they didn't get. And not only that, but they're looking at the leaders that God himself appointed. So who do you think? They're complaining against. If they complain against Aaron and Moses, I should be there. I, sh- I should be the pastor of this church. What makes Pastor Marcus better than me? I could do that. How come he's the one? He gets an anniversary every year. How come I don't get an anniversary every year? It's like that. Well, the reason and the answer is that God chose him. God didn't choose me. So when you complain like that, you're complaining not against Pastor Marcus. You're complaining to God. You're saying, God, your choices are just really not what I think is right. I have a thing or two to tell you. You've really blown it, Lord. That's what the sons of Korah were doing. They were tearing down God's appointed leaders. And thus they were tearing down God. And also, they were rejecting this privilege that they'd been given. Very special privilege to be chosen to take care of the tabernacle. Only one tribe out of 12 was chosen for that privilege. So what did they do? They did this thing that's called grumbling. What is grumbling? Well, I always have my Merriam-Webster nearby because that's my... My, uh, my mother's milk. Grumbling means to mutter in discontent and to growl. So when you grumble, you actually become an animal. You growl. You've left behind your humanity. Mutter in discontent. There's not even any words in growling. It's just... And I know because I've done it. All right, well, surely none of you is a Levite, and none of you was chosen to um, care for the tabernacle. But yet, we can apply some basic concepts here to your life and your situation, as we did with the other three points. So I ask you, are you blind to God's favor in your life? Are you blind to the privileges that he has placed in your life for you? How he has favored you in this way or that way? And he's done that with very special care. Each and every one of you has your own privilege that he has given you. 
Or do you find yourself saying, well, that's not what I want. I don't want a good job. I want to own the business. I don't want to go to the store and buy groceries. I want to be able to go to the best restaurants every night. I don't want to drive a pickup truck. I want to drive a Mercedes diesel. You know, Cora was grumbling because of pride, because they thought they were better than than they, they, they actually were. And they had this ambition. Now, ambition on its own is not a bad thing. We should have ambition to achieve and to become excellent and ambitions to be recognized. Uh, but what's at the core of the ambition? What's driving the ambition? Is it pride? Is it, I want that good thing because I deserve it because I'm that good and more and a bag of chips. Philippians tells us, Philippians tells us, do nothing. Nothing, okay? Let's just read that again. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. I think I have to read that again. It's Philippians 2.3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. And Luke 14:11, the words of Jesus, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Well, those are the four points. And Paul ends by saying, therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. Which is a really interesting thing to say because he's actually saying that if you think you're standing on your own, you're actually not because you only think you are. Let Therefore, let him who thinks he stands. It doesn't say, therefore, let him who stands take heed that he does not fall. It says, therefore, let him who thinks he stands. So even if you think you're standing, you're actually not. You're not standing. The Lord is holding you. The Lord is holding you. And if you think you're standing on your own, that is an illusion. And he tells us, take heed. Open your ears. Pay attention. Be honest with yourself. Don't be afraid to apply life's principles. You know, God tells us that he disciplines those he loves. So if you just got a zing today from any one of these four points, consider that a blessing from God, that he loves you so much that he wants to zing you. He wants to discipline you because he is in the business of conforming you more and more to his likeness every day. And let us give thanks for the example of the nation Israel because they had to live with the consequences of all that garbage that they went through. And boy, did they blow it over and over and over and over. And it's there for the whole world to see. And it would be so easy to say, wow, those crazy Israelites, 
I'm so glad I'm not them. Well, guess what? You are them. You are them. But we have some things that they don't have. We have their example to learn from. We have their example to learn from. So I'm going to review with you what we learned, and that will be the end of the message. Let us not, point one, be seduced back to our old ways from before we were Christians and smuggle in those pre-Christian bad habits into our Christian walk. Let us not, point two, allow the world to influence us more than the Christian world including our Christian friends, counselors, pastor, and word that we have. We have Bibles. We can open it every day. You can turn off the television. You can open the book. Allow the world to influence you less than the the word influences you. Let us not, point three, accuse God of ill will toward us when we don't like the circumstances that we're in. Let us not paste an ugly face on him as though he were vindictive and punishing and hateful and cruel. And point four, let us not grumble and growl against what God has given us. And let us instead, point one, let us remember God's deliverance as Israel somehow forgot that they were just moments before brought out in the, you know, second to the cross, the deliverance from Egypt is the most important event in human history. Or maybe the creation is one. I don't know. But it's up there amongst the top three or four major events in human history. What God did there was not only extraordinary, supernatural, miraculous, but it was also a picture that he wanted to paint of something that we were all going to be able to partake of, and that was the deliverance from sin. Deliverance from the bondage of our sin. That the death angel that should be at our doorstep is passing over us. That Passover, that exodus from Egypt. So we are to remember God's great deliverance and how he saved us and how he delivered us from the burden of sin. He brought us out of darkness and death into his marvelous light. He gave us life from the dead. He breathed on us so that we wouldn't be headed, as Pastor Fred used to say, and this just stayed with me all those years, He snatched us like a branch on the truck that's going to the dump to be burned. He snatched that branch out of there so that we don't have to suffer the consequences that were due for our sin. So let us remember that. Let us not forget it. Let us not go hungrily seeking after other idols to fill the spot that only God can hold. Point two, let us instead... Dive into the word. Surround yourself by the word of God. Seek Christian counsel when you have a problem. Don't just go gossip with your friends. Don't gossip and complain about others. Seek wise Christian counsel 
doesn't even have to be a friend. It can be somebody in the church that you know has some wisdom. Hi, I know I haven't spent much time like developing a friendship with you or anything, but I really need help. I need you to just give me some input on this situation I'm in right now. Can you just help me from a godly perspective? How would you deal with this thing that I'm dealing with? Did you ever make a phone call like that? I don't really know you, but I've seen you in church, and you look like you really live a a strong life in Christ. Would you give me some feedback on what's going on in my life? Get Christian counsel, godly wisdom. And, you know, I always just say turn off the television. It doesn't really have anything for you. It doesn't have any nourishment for you. It's just like eating junk food. It's just junk food. God wants you to eat the meat of the word. He wants you to get off the milk, grow up, and eat some meat. Dive into the world. Surround yourselves with solid Christian friends and role models. Find somebody in the church that you go to and say, I need a mentor. You're it. Let us instead, from point three, treasure God's daily manna. He provides for us day after day after day. And in fact, he is, he tells us in John 6 that he is the manna. He's the manna. He says, the Israelites in the wilderness ate manna and they died. Because that was manna from heaven, but it was still only bread. But I am the bread of life. So treasure that bread and eat that bread. Nourish yourself again on the word. And finally, point four, let us instead rejoice at the privileges that we've been given. We've been given a privilege to play a part in God's unfolding drama, haven't we? He didn't leave us out of the equation. He included us in the story of the redemption of humankind. He's not just doing it himself. Good example of this, Ezekiel's Valley of Dry Bones. God's talking to Ezekiel and telling him, Go, you go, and prophesy to the wind to breathe on these bones that they may live. You know, he very could, easily could have just said, uh, Ezekiel, watch, watch me. I'm, get, I'm blowing on the, on the bones now. <laughs> Look, they're coming to life. No, he used a spokesman. He used a spokesman. He wants us involved with him. We are his spokesmen. We're involved in the process. Yes, it's his process, and all glory goes to him. And we must not try and take the spotlight or take credit for any of it. But the fact is that that's the extent of his love for us and depth of his love for us, that he is including us in the process. So we are to rejoice in that, that we are citizens of his kingdom, that we've been included So I'll end in prayer. Bow your heads, please. The word disciple in Hebrew is Talmud. And that is a word that means learner. Let it be, O Lord, Heavenly Father, that all who are in this room are learners.
that we can learn from others' mistakes, in this case the mistakes of ancient Israel, which you laid out specifically for our benefit, that we might learn from their mistakes. Lord, help us to be learners. Help us to be humble enough to receive your disciplining and your rebuking because you do that with love because you want to see us better. You want to see us more like you. You don't want to see us stuck in our old ways and paying the terrible price for that. You want the best for us. So let us continue to be learners, to seek you, because you tell us that if we seek you with all our hearts, we will find you. In the name of Jesus and for your name's sake, I pray these things. Amen.